0: School of Education with 100% online master's or specialist degrees in fields like teaching, leadership, higher education, and more. More information at rebelteacher.com.
1: Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, April 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hear from state leaders working to improve high-speed internet access in rural Mississippi. Then, why springtime in the state is such a tough time for many and what one doctor says they can do about it. And after a Mississippi Story Corps, a measure aimed at informing crime victims didn't make it through this year's legislature, with one more year to get on the ballot, find out what's next for Marcy's Law. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPV Think Radio. new law has Mississippi Electric Cooperatives busy studying how to bring broadband to rural areas of the state. The Mississippi Broadband Act is the first law allowing the cooperatives to provide high-speed Internet to rural customers. At a press gathering yesterday, Republican House Speaker Philip Gunn says it's one of the biggest accomplishments of the recent legislative session. Speaker Gunn talks about how expensive it can be for utilities to create new service areas.
2: One of the utility companies I was talking to was not the case- I mean, it was not uh, broadband, but it was another utility company. The employee told me he was assigned the task one day by his boss to go figure out how much it was going to cost to provide service to six houses down this road. He came back two days later. He said, i got two proposals for you. If we run service to those six houses, it's $300,000 for us. But if we pay to move those six houses into town, it's only $200,000 for us. It was cheaper to bring the houses to the service than it was to take the service to the houses. And so this is the dilemma that the broadband industry, along with the others, uh, encounter. The cost sometimes is just prohibitive.
1: Speaker Philip Gunn. Democratic Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley tells MPB's Desiree Fraser, internet access is an important issue in rural Mississippi.
2: It's a huge moment for rural Mississippi. A lot of work is to be done going forward. The law requires our rural electric cooperatives to do a study uh, to look at the economic feasibility, but it also, while it requires that, uh, it also opens up for partnerships for uh, co-ops that maybe want to join with other electric co-ops to uh, do this for their citizens. We know that this works. We know the model works and we know it's being done in 107 locations around America uh, with the national model being just across the Alabama line in Hamilton, Alabama. Uh, so we know it can be done. It's a matter now of will. Uh, and, and and there has to be some groundwork laid. Uh, but I think that this is going to be, we'll look back on this in years to come and see this is uh, maybe a turning point for connecting Ah, uh, rural Mississippi to the outside world.
3: Uh you have been on the front lines of this. Why is this so important to you?
2: It is literally uh, the electricity of the 21st century. We couldn't imagine today being in the modern world without electricity and all the uh, uh, not only the conveniences it brings, but it powers our world. Well, today uh, that's internet service. It is phenomenal, and uh, to see how our world has changed, and and nobody expects that our world. Uh, and the economy and education and everything that we deal with in economic development is ever going to require less Internet service. It's only going to require more. It's only gonna, we're only going to become more and more of a connected world. And the question for Mississippi, and quite frankly, the question for our electric cooperatives uh, that are owned by the people, the members own the cooperative. Uh, and, and is, are they going to serve themselves with the technology of today just like they did electricity? And I think that they, we're seeing a lot of them step up to the bat. And, uh, um, you know, I think this is going to be a great thing for Mississippi. It's going to take a while, but we got to get started.
3: When you talk about cost, some are saying it's cost prohibitive. It's just so expensive when you get out in rural areas. Homes are spread out and you would have to figure out how are you going to connect these homes?
2: Well, there's no difference in that question today than it was when we brought electricity. Same, the same question was there when electricity was, was being put in, and we solved that problem through rural cooperatives. We can do the same with the, with the Internet service. And, again, I point to the fact that it's being done in 107 places in America and many places more rural than Mississippi. Uh, fortunately, those places have vision and leadership, and they're looking to solve their problems. And uh, they're, they're doing it. We can do it, too. But we're, there's not a challenge out there today that's faced that was not – there when electricity was brought to rural people. It's just uh, it's a matter of wanting to do it.
3: Can you speak to uh, how it has hampered Mississippi in your estimation and from people that you hear from?
2: Well you know I think that if you look at the fact that millennials uh, young people are leaving our state faster than any state in the United States of America first. Uh, We're losing population last three years in a row. Mississippi's lost population People are not going to stay somewhere that's disconnected. And we're telling rural people in Mississippi that if you want to participate in the modern economy, if you want to be a part of the, of the world of 2019, then you better move out of the state of Mississippi or move to a, a populated area. We're forcing people to give up the rural way of life because, uh, in many times we've not, both areas are not connected. And so now with this legislation, this gives an opportunity Uh, for our cooperative to uh, do this. Let's not forget that a cooperative is just that. It is a group of citizens who pay the power bill. Every person that is a meter holder, that has a meter on their house, and pay their bill to a rural electric cooperative are an owner of that cooperative. And so they get to decide whether to serve themselves with Internet service or not. We want this to be uh, uh, homegrown. And so I think this is one way in which we get it solved. It's now going to be left up to uh, the members of the cooperatives, uh, as to whether or not they pressure their board members and leadership to uh, to get to work or whether they're satisfied with the status quo, which very well may be uh, the economic annihilation of our rural areas. And I just don't think the people in Mississippi are going to stand for
3: that. What will you be doing in the meantime to try and push this issue forward?
2: Well, I'm continuing to, uh, uh, obviously, I, I put together a workshop last uh, last month, February the 28th, when we brought in uh, agencies that write grants uh, with the USDA and what their uh, what their formula is for applying for money that will be due next month. Uh, we have brought together lots of collaboration. I've been working uh, as of today with the AARP because they want to go out and begin educating co-op members about what all, if you had Internet service, how that would change your life for our senior citizens. So, you know, I'm not going to let this issue die. Uh, I intend to um, continue to push and fight until we get this going and and to make sure that just like no one gave up on rural America when it was time to bring electricity to it, I'm not going to give up on rural Mississippi uh, when it comes to getting Internet service.
3: Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank, Thank you so much. Coming up, why springtime in the state is
1: such a tough time for many and what one doctor says they can do about it. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In Legal Terms with Professor Richard Gershen, strives to help you understand legal issues and gives you an opportunity to ask questions of experts. Our next broadcast will feature guest Desiree Hensley, Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Housing Clinic at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Send your questions now to legalterms at mpbonline.org or call the show live today at 10 a.m. Listen on MPB Think Radio or on the Internet at mpbonline.org. A new report from the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America once again says central Mississippi is a tough place to live if you suffer from seasonal allergies. The report ranks Jackson second in the nation. That comes as no surprise to Dr. Galen Marshall of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He talks about it with MPB's Jasmine Ellis.
4: Well, the uh, general statistics uh, in the United States is that about one in three individuals suffer from some form of allergy. And most of those individuals have some sort of a nasal or respiratory component. And that number is certainly as bad, if not worse, in Mississippi as it is in other parts of the country.
3: Do you know where Mississippi falls compared to other states when it comes to allergy season?
4: Well, I will tell you that uh, uh, Mississippi is perpetually in the top five. Jackson itself has been listed this year as the number two worst city in which to live for people who have allergies. It has historically been number one more often than not, where they've been measuring this over about the last 10 years. So we're perpetually right up there in places with allergies, and that is uh, calculated not only by the environment, but by the number of people that suffer with this illness. So it's a real prominent thing here in our uh, community.
3: Is there a certain time frame when people should start taking medication for allergy season?
4: Well, I tell patients and others who ask me that question that our grandmothers were right. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. All of the allergy medicines that are available, whether they're still prescription, and there are some that are still prescription, or those that have now become over-the-counter, all of them work best to prevent symptoms before you get ill rather than to treat the symptoms once you become ill. So if a person knows that, you know, in the spring when the Uh, trees start blooming and I start to have problems with allergies, if they start a few days to a week before they anticipate that, they will do much better than if they wait till I'm so sick I can't stand it. What are you going to do to help me? doesn't mean we can't help those people that once they're symptomatic. It's just more challenging to do that than it is beforehand. So if someone knows that there are times of the year that they're going to have trouble with their allergies, my recommendation is to always start before they have symptoms rather than wait until they get sick.
3: What can people do to lessen their symptoms?
4: It's a very good question. And I think the point is to think of allergies as sort of a, 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 a glass or a cup. And if you're allergic to pollens, when the pollens are high, that adds fluid to the cup. And if you're allergic to maybe moles, so it gets moldy after a rain, and we're certainly getting plenty of that right now, that adds to the cup. And if you're allergic to pet danders and you're around the pets uh, some and they're kind of cooped up because it's been cold and they've been cooped up inside the uh, house, that adds to the glass. And then when the glass overflows, that's the symptoms. So the first thing is that if you can recognize things to which you are allergic and minimize your exposure, that can help your symptoms without even having to take medicines for it. The second is to recognize that if you're allergic to other things that are not pollen-related, for example, molds, well, we live in a pretty moldy environment. It's high humidity. Once we start using air conditioning, which will lower the humidity, that will help the mold. But to lower the humidity, lower the temperatures a bit, and take things out of the home that are going to be traps for mold. And then the last piece of this, again, is is recognizing, even if you say, I'm going to start taking these medicines and they help, this is not like an antibiotic that you take for an infection. You take it long enough, you feel better, then you're done and you're finished. These medicines are controlling your symptoms. Think of them more like uh, somebody who has diabetes and needs insulin. Insulin is not curing their diabetes. Insulin is controlling their diabetes. Almost all these medicines we take, they will not cure our allergies. They control the symptoms of our allergies. And if we understand that, then they will be much more effective.
3: Dr. Marshall, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate it just about allergy season and what people can do to lessen their symptoms. Enjoyed it.
1: Coming up, a measure aimed at informing crime victims didn't make it through this year's legislature. With one more year to get on the ballot, find out what's next for Marcy's Law. That's after a Mississippi Story This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: Palette to Palette is back with Chef Robert St. John and artist Wyatt Waters.
2: Join us this week on Palette to Palette where we have breakfast with Martha Foose. And I get to go paint in Greenwood on Cotton Row. We visit the Grammy Museum and we have an awesome lunch at McCarty Pottery in Marigold in the heart of the Mississippi Delta.
4: And then to Oxford later that evening to paint
0: a sunset of the square. That's Palette to Palette.
3: Thursday at 7.30 on MPB Television.
0: Dave and Nancy Teal moved to Mississippi as newlyweds in 1965. Dave had been a grad student at Harvard and wanted to teach at Tougaloo College. They've lived here ever since. In this conversation from the StoryCorps Mobile Tour, Dave and Nancy talk about moving to Mississippi and about their reaction to the civil rights movement at the time.
5: We would have some uncomfortable times, I would say, going into the community and maybe... Having to tell somebody that where our address was, especially when we lived on the Tougaloo campus or the Tougaloo community, because they'd sort of looked at you like, What are you doing there? Are you a civil rights activist? You know, Mm -hmm. are you going to stir up something? And there were times, if you've seen Selma, you know about the diversity between, or not diversity isn't the right word, but the nonviolent plus the young, more active, angry people who that were sort of going back and forth about how they should manage the changes that were happening in civil rights. So there certainly were times that people speakers came on campus that were very angry, very uh, you know, up front up front about how, mm-hmm.
6: for example,
5: Stokely Carmichael right. I I Black can, Power. Yeah, with Black Power, that was certainly a very uncomfortable time. I had one experience when we went to take the test and get our driver's license from Mississippi, I got a, a test which was all fill in the the blanks, and there was one question about where Highway Patrol had radio stations, and yeah,
6: in what cities in the state?
5: In what cities? In Nine the, of them, <laughs> and and I was supposed to write all those down. Well, I flunked that test, and when I got <laughs> out of there, discovered that Dave had had a multiple choice test, which was considerably easier than what I was given. The second time I went back, I got the multiple-choice test,
6: Which was strange, considering I was the one at Tougaloo. They should have given me the tough one, huh?
5: After Meredith integrated Ole Miss, things changed a good bit, and a lot of the students that might have come to Tougaloo then were more likely to go to Mississippi State or Ole Miss or Southern. I think I've heard you say that the quality of the students generally was not as good because more of them took advantage of those bigger that, schools, uh, yeah, I guess, and cheaper schools. <laughs> generally,
6: was true, but as I think about those seventy-five students starting in ni- in nineteen
5: seventy, I worked in the admissions office. I was trained as a dietitian in Boston, but when I came here, what I did in Boston, I was not allowed to do here. I made rounds with doctors and wrote in charts in Boston and in Jackson. I wasn't allowed to look in a patient's chart. You remember the time that you and somebody, I'm not even sure who, were staying in somebody's home at night in Madison County?
6: Yeah, that was an interesting experience, I guess. I think it was the first semester that uh, we were in Mississippi. And at that time, there were a few families, especially a couple of families who lived out in the uh, countryside, sort of, who apparently were willing to send their young children, ages between, say, 6 and 10, to a school that was nearer than the school they otherwise would go to, but it was all white. And the question was, would their kids be safe? How would they be treated at the school? And and so on. Two things about this I remember. One family had a a son who was... And remember, this was in 1965. This little boy went to the school where the class was otherwise all white. And the story I heard was that someone who was just really mean poured orange juice on his head and then proceeded to put sand on top of that. There were, I guess, worse things were feared might happen. And so one concern was that, I guess they sometimes were referred to as night riders, guys in cars after dark would uh, drive around and cause problems. One of these families in the, the county just north of uh, where the college is, it was a family that sent their children to a school in this situation. I remember being there with an, in that family's house with another Tougaloo faculty member after dark, and we were sitting on the floor in the living room, and there was a, a gun on the floor near us. And I've never shot a gun, and I didn't want to then, and I'm not sure <laughs> what I would have done. But we were there to listen for the sound of tires on the gravel driveway outside because we were afraid a Molotov cocktail would come through the window into the house. It never did. We never heard the car that we were afraid of, but that kind of thing did happen. To hear more of our conversations
0: from the StoryCorps Mobile Tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps Mobile Tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Peter O'Dowd. We make mistakes because we're human. But how do we admit what went wrong and learn from
1: it? I think the bigger challenge is not to go back, but to try to find your way forward as a different person who's been changed in some way. One expert's
0: advice on moving on. That's next time on Here and Now.
2: Today at noon on MBB Think Radio.
1: Excuse me. I'm Karen Brown. California Tech billionaire Henry T. Nichols is trying to change the state constitution here in Mississippi. Marcy's Law is named for Nicholas's sister who was killed by her former boyfriend in the 1980s. The family says they endured troubling encounters with Marcy's killer while he was out on bail awaiting trial. Henry Nichols... Nicholas has started a foundation to make victim notification laws a part of every state constitution in the country. Austin Barber of the Clearwater Group is a spokesman for Marcy's Law in Mississippi. He talks to us about what's next for the effort, which failed in this year's legislative session.
0: Marcy's Law is named after Marcy Nicholas, who was a, uh, a young lady that was murdered when she was in college. Um, and when she was in college, I believe in the late 80s uh, in California, and it was a terrible story and situation about how she was uh, murdered by um, an, an ex-boyfriend and and sort of how he went through the criminal system, how he got out on bail, but then just you know brutally harassed her family during her funeral and, and stalked him. And it was just a terrible situation um, that the family had to deal with um and um Marcy's brother uh, Dr. Henry Nicholas uh is has been the sole benefactor of this issue and it just it obviously left a, obviously a, a massive impression in his mind throughout the years of there's got to be a better way to do this to let uh victims or the family of victims if the victim was obviously murdered um sort of have Um, know more about the system, know more about the process of of what's going on with the accused.
1: What this movement is, is to try and make this law a part of each state's constitution. Constitution. And that's not the case in Mississippi. This is a measure that failed in the legislature. Why is it important, since it is a law, why does it need to be in the constitution?
0: Well, and I'm not a lawyer, but that's a great question. And and it's a question that, that we've had to answer. And the experts say, because it gives victim's greater standing in the courtroom if it's in your state constitution versus versus if it's just in statute. So if this says in if it says in our state constitution that a victim has the right to be notified, the real right to be notified. And there's some mm-hmm. counties in Mississippi that do a great job of notifying victims about you know what's going on with the case that that they were involved with. And sadly, there's some other counties that do a terrible job with it. Um, but this would make it a, a requirement for all counties to have to do, and it would. Would give that victim, but isn't
1: it a requirement already because it's the there's law? There's no
0: teeth in it, though. That's what's sad. There are just no teeth into it. And so this would give the victims an opportunity to have greater standing to, to, at some point in time during the process, to stand in front of a judge and say, let me tell you how this has impacted me.
1: Some legislators wanted the victim's rights legislation to include anti-hate crimes language. Same kind of thing to go into the Constitution. Would you support that?
0: We would not support that because it's just not germane to this issue because this is for crimes, all kinds of crimes, every single crime. And if you begin to specify one crime of the over or or the other... You really run into issues with that.
1: What's next in Mississippi, as you said, is to get it on the ballot?
0: It's to try to get it on the ballot for uh, November of 2020. The legislature will have to approve that in the uh, 2020 legislative session. So, um, you know, folks who, who are, who are um, interested in Marcy's Law, they should go to the Marcy's Law Facebook, Marcy's Law Mississippi Facebook page to learn more about it. The team in, in Mississippi, uh, the volunteers in Mississippi are going to be covering festivals and, and really getting out there talking to people summer and this fall so people can, you know, begin to ask more questions, learn more about this and see how they can get involved uh, if they think that strengthening uh, the rights for victims is an
1: important thing to do in Mississippi. Austin Barber is the founder of the Clearwater Group and representing the National Marcy's Law Organization. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, stay tuned for Relatively Speaking from Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online by visiting mpbonline.org. You can also download the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores, or you can subscribe to Mississippi edition in your favorite podcasting app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio.
0: Support for MPB comes from the University.